Well, hello there, my friends. Chris Marcus here with you for Arcadia Economics as we continue on Monday afternoon now and silver trading. Silver is still taking a beating on the day, as you can see. Not too thorough, given what we've seen over the past couple of decades. And fortunately, I am joined with the legend himself, Brian London, who's been holds, hosting the New Orleans Conference since the 70s. So you knew about all this gold and silver stuff. Wow, before I was born. Not really. I Jim Blanchard was uh, my mentor in the industry, business partner uh -huh. for a while, and really an icon in the industry. And he, he hired me as a junior copywriter in 1985. So I was about as low on the totem pole as you could imagine at, at that point. And, uh, and Jim started the conference in 1974, a few years after he had started Gold Newsletter to try and get gold legalized again. So he was the real innovator, the real giant in the industry, and I kind of followed along in his wake, and still am. <laughs> yeah, and so what, what year was it specifically that you got involved? 1985. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking it could you couldn't have been, couldn't have been writing newsletters. You're not. I'm not. Our our age spread isn't that wide, but I think it's interesting. Especially, I'm reading Jerome Smith, Silver Profits for the '80s. Did you ever? Are you familiar with Jerome? Yeah, all of those people. Believe me, read about them, read of them, read their work, met them, partied with a bunch. So. In general, all of the icons of the hard money movement, you know, I was there right in the middle of it and had no real exposure to any of this stuff, was kind of an innate libertarian. And then I get, I get thrown in with Jim, who was the most radical libertarian you've ever met, you know, the original gold bug, the original silver bug, all of this stuff. And I'm like, what the hell did I just do? What kind of a career path is this? But it's been fascinating, interesting. A lot of brilliant people along the way. A lot of the giants, unfortunately, of that industry are gone. Uh, but, you know, back then it was all mailed newsletters to get this kind of commentary. And now it's absolutely instantaneous. And there's so much information out there. And a lot of smart people still as well. Yeah, and I think silver is certainly the ultimate playground for that, where there's a lot of stuff out there, uh, as we were discussing before we hit record buttons, some of which some people find more accurate than others and we'll behave ourselves today. But I'm, I'm stunned as I'm reading what Jerome Smith wrote back in the 80s, especially what he described. I mean, I'd read, you know, seen some documentaries, read a couple articles about the Hunt brothers, but really the, the combination between I think at one point he mentions they raised margin from a thousand per contract up to fifty thousand. They were basically raising it until the price came down. So, get, how would you put this all in context, especially for a lot of people new to silver? Now, there's a lot of history back there, and what would you share that you think is important for people to know? Well, that's an interesting story. You know, in that silver spike, it was Dr. Henry Jarecki, who was kind of the mm. mad uh, scientist of the commodities world, um, who, who was, the, I guess, the president of the exchange back then and changed the rules on the Hunt brothers to basically crater the market or, or prevent their, their silver corner. Um, 
And as things go, Jarecki was a brilliant guy. And Jim actually, Jim Blanchard, got in business partnership with him later on to start what was, in effect, the first hedge fund offered to the public uh, back in the early 90s. We worked on that with Jarecki for a while. Who, and again, he was a brilliant guy. I don't think he was the evil genius that people um, think he was because of what he did in the silver market. Um, because frankly, just about anybody would have done the same thing considering what the Hunt brothers were doing. It's just an example of the establishment is there for a reason and they can and will change the rules. And I think that lesson uh, really translates to today with the silver squeeze and everything else. The, the silver squeezers, you know, the, the, um, the Reddit silver investing crowd just needs to know what they're going up against and uh, in the forces that can be brought to bear. And, and there are right ways to do it as well. I mean, the whole SLV versus PSLV argument, um, that, that can't be stressed enough for these new silver investors. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting what you mentioned there where Jarecki and the Comex and, uh, it's been a while since I read through the legal language, but I remember, and David Morgan's talked about a lot, it is legally worded so that they can change the rules. But if you're a customer and you're like, if you're a customer who's buying long gold or silver futures, but there's a track record that whenever you win, they change the rules. What what message, What what would you say? Like if you had a family member saying, hey, they see a lot of money printing. They think the price of silver has to go up. And they say, should I buy a COMEX future? What, what would you say? Obviously not legal trading advice, but just your opinion that you would give. Well, that sounds like somebody who isn't very sophisticated or experienced. So I would not advise them to play in the futures market. But if they're looking to uh, buy silver as a speculation and also have an effect on the silver market, in effect, have their purchase actually exacerbate a situation that they're that that is the rationale for why they're investing then they shouldn't buy futures because it has no relation uh whatsoever to the actual supply and demand of, uh, of silver on the physical market so it is just a betting emporium it is a horse race it is uh, a bet on a greater fool theory um that's all it is. It, it, it's just a paper game. Unfortunately, it does set the prices for the silver market. Uh, and then we see that cascading and creating other dislocations. So I would not advise them to do that. And I do give this kind, the, again, not investment advice, but uh, views and opinions on the silver market almost constantly, as you can imagine, in my position for people coming into the market, friends, family, uh, colleagues, new acquaintances, and longtime uh, precious metals investors. You know, what's the best way to buy silver? And I tell everybody, first thing, get a physical stash, have it accessible. I don't need to know how you store it, how you hide it, whatever, do whatever you think is, is safe and prudent for you, but get some in your physical possession, some of it and, and accessible at any time. Some of it that may be not in your immediate possession, but still safe. Uh, use that as insurance, not against a possibility, but against an inevitability. That being the, you know, the destruction, the purchasing power of, of your currency. And then if you want to buy even more to speculate, 
Well, if you're sophisticated, yes, futures and options can give you leverage. Junior mining stocks, which is what we uh, focus on in Gold Newsletter, can be extraordinarily profitable in the kind of bull market we're in uh, that I believe we're still in. Um, but if you want it physical and yet you don't want to store it, buy PSLV. Um, don't buy SLV. You know, Buy something where it's allocated in your name tax advantages, et cetera, et cetera, and can have an impact on the supply demand situation. Yeah, and Brian, you mentioned uh, junior miners and options in the same paragraph, which is, of course, completely inappropriate for me to even connect the two. Although, would you know that it's actually possible to get somebody to write you call options on junior miners, which uh, we will leave aside for now, and I'll just daydream about that a little bit later. Although I appreciate you mentioned because in your position, you've been seeing this, answering questions, hearing speakers for years. What do you say to people? Because I get this question a lot. I mean, when they see the price of silver drop 50 cents today amidst people having issues, uh, it's not rumors, this Kitco and Perth Mint. I've gotten plenty of emails I've started talking with the people who are sending these emails, people that are contacting John Adams. Um, so I think there's a lot of questions out there and a lot of people are confused. What do you say to people when they ask, what the heck happened there today? Uh, well, you, in your Twitter preface to this, you said you were going to ask me why is silver down 50 cents today, uh, which was not the kind of softball question that we, we had talked about, I believe. Um, Maybe this will help. Yeah, thank you. I <laughs> promised you an easy answer, and that easy answer is nobody knows, and don't let anybody pretend to you that they do, uh, because we really don't know. But that said, if you look at that chart, the first thing I noticed this morning uh, was that the, the initial downdraft at the New York Open came right on schedule, but it looks like that failed. It wasn't much of a downdraft. That chart shows it even better. And then, you know, the powers that be came in and says, okay, well, we're going to redouble our efforts and lead the charge again. And that's kind of what happened subsequently. Interestingly enough, the rest of the markets are down, the U.S. stock market, et cetera, despite Jerome Powell going on 60 Minutes over the weekend and again promising that we are not going to raise rates as if they could. I, um, I was concerned. I thought, I thought he was going to go on 60 Minutes and hike. 4%. You can go all Volcker on us. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> um, but the thing is, I don't think it's having an effect. Uh, you know, Powell can't raise rates, number one. I don't think the market's buying it uh, that they're going to wait that long. The, the market has, the broader markets haven't really recognized the, the, the trick box that the Fed is in. Eventually, they will have to raise rates. We do have inflationary pressures coming up. The CPI is going to be out tomorrow. That's going to be probably as stunning, if not more so, than the PPI was on Friday. And the Fed is going to have to address that some way. Maybe that's what the markets are looking at. Um, but the bottom line is the markets are so uh, inured and so uh, to Fed easy money, so addicted to easy money. They no longer want easy money. They want ever easier money. So they want the Fed to come out with something that trumps what they last said. 
And I think that right now we're getting some cynicism that they can possibly trump what they last said, what they last did. I mean, what more can they do? Um, but that's what is needed to prop up this magnificent edifice of financial markets that all this Fed easy money has created. Eventually, that rocket fuel, that adrenaline is not going to be sufficient to support all that growth in the heights that these markets have uh, ascended to. So in, if that happens, it's going to be uh, very dramatic, as you can imagine. And then we're really going to see the Fed and all the central banks get truly desperate. And that's what I think takes this bull market and precious metals and gold and silver to yet another level. Yeah. And Brian, is it is it a, is it if or when? I, I think it's when. We just don't know when. When is. You know, it is inevitable. If you look over the course of the last, oh, 40 years now, ever since the late 70s when Volcker broke the back of inflation, uh, the Federal Reserve, given that they now had uh, uh, the ability to liquefy, to reliquify the markets, to print money, whatever they wanted to do without any repercussions because the dollar was no longer tied to gold, um, they reacted the same way to every little hiccup in the economy. They lowered rates. And as you can see by a chart of the Fed funds rate, every succeeding uh, bottom in the Fed funds rate was, an, was a lower low. And when they tried to normalize rates, they never got even up to the midpoint of the previous range, much less get up to where they were before. So it's a stair step downward, ever downward, ever downward until post 2008, we got to uh, the foundation at zero. Um, this next cycle, you know, have, they have to go in the basement if they're going to accelerate that with negative rates, uh, which by the way, they've never actually come out and uh, dismissed out of hand. They said everything but, but they've never dismissed it out of hand. Um, so that may be the next step, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, I have a, a heated discussions with my friend Peter Schiff about this a lot. He thinks the next one is the big one that's totally going to destroy the dollar. Yeah. And, you know, I would have thought that would have been 2008, but it didn't happen. And I don't know if it'll be another cycle like this or the one after that. But the trend is the mega trend is apparent and it's obvious. And I think it's inevitable. There has to be a new monetary regime at some point. Debt's are too large to be handled in any other way than a very significant depreciation of the underlying currency, the dollar, but every other fiat currency as well. Uh, so I don't know what the exact path forward is. I don't know the exact timing. I just know you need to own gold and silver going into it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And Brian, I would suggest that you and Peter were correct. I mean, this should have happened, or actually, I mean, it should have happened well before 2008. Again, it's not like I woke up one day, said I'm going to spend the rest of my life talking about silver manipulation. But over the past decade, I've been trying to figure out either the prices come down because they hammer a lot of paper, or there's some other explanation that I still can't figure out, or no one is willing to tell me yet. So... But look I at think the volume that, on that chart, Chris. Look at the volume it took to to drive that that waterfall in um, in silver. Yeah, and and this is 
I understand like people say spoofing, you know, is different. When I interviewed Bart Chilton, he described, I asked him exactly my understanding. He called it spoofing. So I think there's semantics here, whatever you call it. In the end, you know, JP Morgan gets fined and we see this repeatedly. And I think that's why it's been allowed to happen because it does keep the whole thing in check. They've been given another 12 years of money printing time. Um, although Brian, actually excited that you mentioned that because I know you've actually had uh, the maestro. Now I know CNBC, they called Jerome Powell. They, they accused him of being the maestro a couple of weeks ago. But I know you uh, have an interesting story about Greenspan um, because I believe he spoke at the New Orleans conference one year, correct? Yeah, in 2016, uh, post-Fed, he, he spoke. But also, he was a regular speaker at the conference pre-Fed. Uh, and one of the most radical and ardent gold bugs you'll, you'll ever meet, and eloquent gold bugs, too. Jim Blanchard ran into him at the, uh, uh, in Washington one time. I believe it was the, um, when Cato was opening the new headquarters and talked with him a while. And, and at that point, uh, Greenspan was in the Fed and was chair of the Fed. And uh, they kind of reminisced back on his gold writings and said it was the best stuff he ever wrote or shared that, you know, with Jim. Um, so he's always been an ardent gold bug. How he reconciled that with his tenure at the Fed, you know, that's up to him, you know, to decide how he was able to do that, honestly. But uh, he certainly is somebody that I believe thinks correctly about the role of gold uh, in the financial markets and where we're headed. And he actually shared something to me in a private conversation when he spoke. He, I was asking him about the, the federal debt and, and really the, the fact that there's no way we'll ever be able to handle it at that point without some depreciation in the dollar. And he said, listen, the debt's bad. Uh, I'm paraphrasing him here, uh, but the real issue now is the um, uh, derivatives for all of the too big to fail institutions. Now, keep in mind, this was much more uh, clo in closer proximity to 2008, but the government had taken on essentially the risk of all the too big to fail institutions, of which there were a bunch and are a bunch and even more now. And he said, uh, that those institutions don't even know what their derivative liabilities are. I agree. So it, it's, it, you know, it's approaching infinite. And there have been, you know, as, as, um, as we're getting so used to the word trillion being bandied about, there are estimates in quadrillion for the, for the size of those derivative liabilities. And he says the, the Fed basically is backing all of that. The U.S. government is backing all of that. Um, so bankers got to eat too, Brian. They they get hungry also. Yeah, and and the, the thing is, if that if we have that kind of a financial crisis where those liabilities come up, you know, uh, big zeros and have to be backed, you're talking about at that point a monetary reset in the U.S. It has to be at that point because there's there's literally not enough money in existence to satisfy that. Now I know that the the nominal uh, uh, liabilities in, in potential liabilities of those derivatives are vastly different. But if we get to a situation like that, where the rules have to be changed, like a situation with the COMEX, sure, they're going to have to change, they can change the rules. But if you get to that point where rules have to be changed, something new has to be created, 
Um, I think you're, it's going to be such a sign of the stresses in the markets that just on the face of that, you're going to have gold and silver prices skyrocketing. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree with everything you said, except maybe the tense where you said if or when. I mean, we saw that in SLV February 3rd. They mm -hmm. sent Jeff Curry out. Goldman Sachs sent Jeff Curry out, and I'll say it, not asking anybody else, in my words, they sent him out to lie on TV. They've sent other people out to lie. Richard Hayes of Perth Mint lied. Yeah, well, what, what do you think about what Curry said? Because that amazed me. Could someone be that stupid to say that the <laughs> that SLV is is just as neutral in, in silver exposure. As soon as they take those silver orders, they hedge it immediately in the market. So he may have actually been telling the truth the whole time. And JP Morgan most likely is the one that's doing the hedging. That's make and he know and Curry knows that. In other words, the net effect is zero of a silver purchase on SLV because that that uh, JP Morgan is then shorting the market for an equal amount of, of silver that's been bought. Now, Brian, I ready, ready to begin on that. <clears throat> I appreciate you're a really modest and humble guy. So I'm going to brag on your behalf here a little bit. Because ladies and gentlemen, I might add, this is what you can get at the New Orleans Investment Conference. Because I started out the call giving Brian an unfair question. Why is silver down 50 cents? But he didn't buckle to the pressure. He raised me. Could anybody be as stupid as what Jeff from Goldman said when he committed a felony, not once, but multiple times on TV? And Brian, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm baffled by it myself, but I'm sure if there's anywhere that we could get to the heart of this. Well, actually, I'll give you a, a re-raise. <laughs> there you go. Keep it up. Is, where, where is Jeff's speaker profile? What? Where is the Jeff Curry panel? That's what my audience wants to know. Well, maybe that's a good where idea. Where is he on the schedule? Maybe I should invest, uh, invite him to the New Orleans conference. It wouldn't be the first time where I invited someone just to be a uh, sacrificial lamb for the audience. Okay, can you arrange a debate with me and Jeff Curry? Please, I'll give you all of my silver. Please take my silver. Take it. I can tell you, Chris, that over many years, there are many great debate ideas, but usually they're so great because you would never get the two parties to agree to debate. Um, so that's, that is the challenge, but I would love to try and get him. That would be wonderful. I mean, Brian, the only problem is you'd probably have to raise this price or get the uh, like the football stadium to seat the attendance. Jeff has a lot of pull. So, wow, that would be special. All right. Uh, I'm blocking off 14th or what? what is the dates for uh, this uh, 2020? Yeah, Do you have the date yet for okay, it's I'm not October 19th through 22nd. There you go. 2020. Okay. So that's right, folks. Get your ticket before. It's like a call option on a junior minor, junior silver minor. Get the ticket before Jeff Curry signs on. And you could, you might have people cornering the ticket market like the Super Bowl if you get Jeff on there. Reselling, yeah. The, um, yeah, and, and what we did was we, we changed the model because so much of the content is virtual now. Uh, you can buy a membership for that $375 
and that gets you access to all of our virtual content throughout the year, virtual attendance of the New Orleans Conference, all of the recordings, et cetera. But it costs a few hundred dollars more or will cost a few hundred dollars more to attend the in-person event. And we're going to be in person this year, Chris. It's going to be incredible. I can't wait. Is there any truth to the rumor that the gift bags include a the shorts or the ETFs t-shirt? Is that is that true or is that I'm is that a crazy silver guy getting out of control? We may have New Orleans conference masks for everyone. Uh, and, you know, and maybe a vial of your vaccine of choice. Um, who wow. knows? We're, we're, all of these things are still under consideration. Well, my man knows how to make a cliffhanger there. There's no question. I'm excited. Uh, in fact, Brian, I tell people often, and you remember this because I was there the first time. It was not with Arcadia Economics. And then the second year, which I guess would have been 2019, that was when I brought Yara, who was the other half and uh, marketing half of Arcadia. This was before we knew whether this was going to be like, <laughs> I'd been like cranking away for years and people always found it amusing, but I was trying to figure out how to create a business. And, but I remember as we went through and we would meet these different guys and you were kind enough to give us that booth in the middle of the aisle and I just kept thinking about how the way ESPN goes and they cover the Super Bowl or the World Series and you have the event, but you also have these people, many of whom are fascinating characters and just to provide an insight. And that really was a fun moment. And I remember specifically being in the hallway talking with her about that a lot. And it was well, you know, in fact, I wish I were there right now because I know a lot of people feel like the lone wolf. And I'm here in Austin, Texas today, which is does not appear to be a big silver community here, shall we say. And, and I think there's really something special about that environment you create. So I'll be looking forward to that. Although I got two more questions here for you before okay. we let you run. In terms of how this plays out, you know, we know the contracts are worded so that you can cash settle. I don't know if you heard any of the recent Rick Rule interviews, which I found quite intriguing because he talks about how he's like, people who think that Comex is going to get spanked. It's probably not going to happen because they'll change the rules and do what's best for the Comex. And I'll agree with that. And then as I thought about it, if I put myself, <laughs> I feel like a brief snippet in, into the bank or government shoes, as unpleasant as that may be, but I'll, I'll brave it in there. What would be the best thing for them to do, given the spot that they're in now? And if they can cash settle, so any of the banks that are short, they can write the check for 25 bucks. And actually, the bigger the gold or silver, if you said like $280,000 gold and marked it eight to one and $35,000 silver, like the bigger the price, the more it's, it's essentially like another form of them printing money. You know, they can wipe out any of the debt. They can have a couple space bucks left over, print their SDRs. And I, I'm not, it almost seems like that's kind of what would have to happen and be in the bank's best interest. And when you hear, you know, I know Rick's been doing this for a while and he's one of the biggest buyers and he understands what happened back in the 80s. So especially to hear him say that, curious if you have any thoughts or is there, 
another possible way that this could end. Well, yeah, I think so. And it's interesting you mentioned Rick because I talked with him last week or late the week before, I forget which, but I wanted to record a, a, a Zoom call with him for our New Orleans conference members. Uh, and uh, fortunately for them, unfortunately for anybody else, it's, it's that content is exclusive to them. But I can share that <clears throat> I asked Rick about this, you know, the fact that the COMEX is, um, if what would happen would be the end game if, if they can't supply silver. Uh, I noted that the, 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 one of the primary results of the silver squeeze is the fact that you can't get physical uh, on a retail level. But that's really more due to the fact that, imagine this, government mints aren't good business people and they can't ramp up manufacturing, they can't plan for you know, inventories, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of that is really the fact that they just can't make the stuff in, as quickly as, as it's being demanded. And they have no incentive to either, by the way. Uh, but I asked him that because of the Sprott Physical Silver Trust uh, doesn't buy that small bar stuff that's uh, in the retail market. Is there any physical, any tightening in the large bar physical market that the trust is actually is seeing? And he shared that it is getting tight. Not that they can't find it, not that there's any danger yet, uh, they can't find it, but that it is getting increasingly more difficult to find the large bars in that market. And that's something we hadn't seen before. Now imagine what happens uh, when Sprott has to, to get more product out of the market, starts to raise its price to buy that silver. So then this, the, the trust starts rising in price more quickly than the price of the underlying asset as determined by COMEX. That alone will start putting pressure on that whole system, that paper market system. So, you know, if people keep buying silver and we, and we get that, that kind of a move, because there, there are limited supplies, no matter what anybody says, demand, monetary demand for silver can dramatically exceed the available supplies of silver. And, and that's the whole basis of a, of a big, you know, longstanding bull market, secular bull market in silver. So we could see that. I think that's a very possible end game. And we seem to be closer to that than we were months ago. And I, and I think getting increasingly closer to it. Yeah, I sure agree. And uh, again, with my backdrop here, that by all means is not in any way legal financial advice. Although when I hear things like that happening, the price drops 50 cents. Again, I'm not saying that's what other people should do, but it helps me sleep a little better at night. And I might mention First Majestic is one of our sponsors, although I'm not saying if there's any connection, I'm just saying, Brian, that's what I put my money behind. Again, it's not to say these hit, but just I stack these things together and <laughs> that helps me feel better than owning negative yielding treasuries. So thank you to First Majestic for bringing us today's show and um, Brian, I guess the last thing to touch on, what do you think of this CFTC? You've seen this for long enough. I've tried to give the benefit of the doubt. I actually submitted evidence. I've called, I've written letters, I've sent smoke signals. 
What, what, what's your take after everything you've seen the CFTC? What do you think people should know on that one? Uh, regulatory capture. Uh, the the regulated the the actors in a regulated market capture the regulatory body over time, and you know that's what the CFTC is there for to serve uh, to to make sure that there are orderly markets for the big players involved in the markets, and those big players are not all not only the bullion banks, but also the governments. I mean, they actually get a discount, a volume discount on uh, Comex, so. Uh, you know, two plus two equals four. You just got to add it all up, you know, and, and the CFTC is not there to serve the little guy. It's not there to serve us. It's there to serve the people who pay the salaries, their salaries by existing. So that's all you really need to know about that. Maybe it's to serve the little people and us on a silver platter to the big banks um, we see the orderly market they maintained yet again today. So, Brian, uh, well said. And for folks that want some real information rather than uh, the garbage that these banks or regulatory agencies publish, can you let them know uh, I have the gold newsletter up here and also the conference. Uh, I appreciate that you share what you've been doing for a long time. I think it's more important than ever. And if you could let folks know what they can get here. Yeah, it's the oldest precious metals and mining stock advisory in the world, continually published, still around. And also we have a link on there for our golden opportunities e-letter. That newsletter is free, doesn't give specific stock recommendations. Gold newsletter is one of the most affordable uh, subscription-based newsletters out there. Uh, and you can subscribe to that to get our latest views, not only on the markets, but also the best mining stocks that we see out there. And also, I hear we're doing a podcast soon coming up. Yes, we are. You got me on yours and I'm getting you on mine. That's uh, reciprocation there. Um, we are getting you on there. And um, yeah, we do have a, a Gold Newsletter podcast. That's very enjoyable. It kind of uses my Rolodex, if that's still a word, uh, network in the markets and um we have a lot of very interesting guests, you included, coming up. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to talking with Fergus again, who I did meet at the 2019 conference. And again, speaking of the conference, can you give folks what they need to know and where they can get their ticket now for this year's? Well, they actually cannot get their ticket now for this year's. On, but if they would go to neworleansconference.com, just go to contact us and email us. And we'll let them know as soon as the uh, registration is open for this year's event. Again, it's 19th to the 22nd. So October 19th to the 22nd. So mark your calendars, clear out those dates. And it's going to be a blockbuster, Chris, because everybody is so eager to get back to in-person events. So we're better to do it than the New Orleans Investment Conference, the granddaddy of investment conferences. As you said, it's, it's an atmosphere that is unduplicated anywhere else in the industry, a real intellectual energy uh, that just permeates the building, a uh, very exciting place to be, very informative, very valuable. And it's one of these places you can go right up to these speakers that you've only seen on video or in television uh, and talk to them and ask them your questions. It's, it's a wonderful place to rub elbows with some of the smartest investors and analysts out there. 
Well, I sure will be looking forward to it. And Brian, I apologize in advance if your server goes down because you get 5,000 emails chanting, we want Jeff, but the market demand is what it is. And we will continue implementing those free market ideals. So great to catch up with you as always. And uh, we'll have to do this again soon. You got it, Chris. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, my friend. I will see you at the show.